Hello everyone, my name is Ryan Driscoll, and this is Stoic Warfighters, a podcast about the intersection of ancient philosophy and modern warfare. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Franklin C. Annis. Dr. Annis is an Army National Guard officer and veteran of the Iraq War with over 15 years in service. He is widely known for publishing research on improving military self-directed learning. He holds a doctorate in education from North Central University and a master's in military history from the University of Birmingham. His research into military history and military educational theory have frequently crossed into the field of philosophy. As a result, he has studied the influences of Stoic military philosophy from Sparta through their current uses with the U.S. military. Before we begin, I must say that Dr. Annis here is expressing his own opinions. These opinions do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. All right. Hey, Dr. Franklin, how are you doing today? Outstanding. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. I'd like to start a little bit just with your military background. I know that in your bio that you're a National Guard officer, and I've heard a little bit of your previous work. I know that you deployed to Iraq, and I know that you do research into military history and things like that. But can you tell me a little bit more about your experience in the military? Like Specifically, what did you do in the military? Sure. Sure. So I guess way back when. So I grew up inside a military family in the, in the Midwest. Um, I had started college in the late 90s with uh, through the ROTC program, um, expecting to get commissioned. And uh, I was hoping to become an infantry officer way back in the day. Went to Creighton University, uh, specializes in emergency medicine. Unfortunately, I injured my back doing some uh, training in Alaska, and it got me kicked out of the ROTC program and uh, pretty much ended my military career. And uh, as we all know, 9-11 happened. Uh, I went through several years of physical therapy. And then uh, by 2006 uh, timeframe, number one, the Army was desperate enough for recruits. And number two, I had uh, kind of improved my previous injury enough that I could come back in. And I enlisted as a combat medic for uh, the Nebraska National Guard. And then from there, uh, went through training, and then a couple years later, they had a ground ambulance platoon ready to deploy for Iraq. And that was short, um, an, off- or an officer. So I was re- offered a direct commission, got direct commissioned, deployed um, as a platoon leader, ground ambulance company in 2009-2010 period. So not the major shooting period of the war, but the drawdown period. So saw a lot of the interesting politics about uh, destroying destroying equipment and medical supplies, retrograde type actions in Iraq. Um, came back home, kind of had a rough personal life when I came back home, but I uh, continued to expand my uh, kind of specialty. So uh, I picked up several specialties in the medical service corps. So everything from operations, logistics, uh, signal um, specific to the medical service corps, and uh, eventually became deputy state surgeon for the Nebraska Guard and then came up to the, the National Guard Bureau uh, to work on various different projects up here. So what are you currently doing for the Guard? You said you're working on some different projects. You're, is, is it more operational or research-based? So yes, more operational. So I'm the medical logistics officer inside the, uh, the, uh, the Army National Guard Chief Surgeon's Office. So I'm responsible for uh, basically accounting for and transferring medical equipment around the country, uh, resourcing, deploying units and such, upgrading okay. equipment. Okay. And then I know, again, from 
you know, looking at some of your previous work that uh, you've sent me and then I've, that I've just seen, I know, like, for instance, you were a speaker during the Stoicon Military X that you've worked a lot with neo-Stoicism, which is really, yes. you know, what makes this an interesting conversation for the subject matter of this podcast. And uh, I was just curious, how did you get introduced to Stoicism? Was it something that was a personal, you know, experience before a professional experience in terms of your research or vice versa, or you mind kicking that off? So I, I had a father that was kind of kind enough to send me to a private um, Catholic high school. So Creighton prep. And that was uh, my senior year in high school is the first time I got introduced to the philosophy of stoicism. Um, can't say I understood it well there um, in my college career. I took several more courses on philosophy learn more about it there. Um, I, could, I wouldn't have said that I was ever a practicing Stoic by the time I went to Iraq, but I knew enough that I carried a copy of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations with me when I deployed. But it wasn't really until I came back home. Um, after the deployment, things really got rough that I, I realized, hey, um, I need to improve the situation I'm in. And a lot of that's about controlling thoughts, ideas, concepts, and then um, I just kind of stumbled back into philosophy um, by running across uh, uh, um, Ralph Waldo's Emerson's self-reliance. And from there, it went from um, Emerson to Thoreau and both Emerson and Thoreau quote the Stokes quite a bit. And then just kind of expanded my interest into various different aspects of philosophy. And then on the personal side of my house, I was uh, working on uh research in a doctorate of education program and I ran across a, an early American educational theorist named Captain Alden Partridge and he he's really revolutionary in terms of what he did for the education inside the United States but no one really knows knows about him mainly because he's one of the early superintendents of West Point and then later on he went to found his own military schools and uh, he was really instrumental in and uh, getting uh, land-grant colleges started. But later on in his life, he really attacked uh, West Point in terms of trying to get West Point shut down and then kind of going to a militia-based officer system and teaching every college graduate how to be a military leader. And uh, because he took on the Army, Army historians didn't really record him well. Well, through my studies in education, I really hyper-focused on him for a long period of time. And it wasn't until kind of much later when I was running across um, Stoic material, I started to realize there's this tremendous amount of overlap. Like everything he's doing inside his curriculum can be related back to Stoicism. And it became a big search to be, to go back and go through and say, well, where's he pulling these ideas from? And then here he is inside the United States, but Carl von Klauswitz over in Prussia you could take Partridge's educational theories and imprint them onto Clausewitz's theories of war, and they were completely compatible. And you think, well, America and Prussia, right after the American Revolution, kind of the 1820s time period, they didn't really have any type of functional relationship. So how are these military leaders writing almost identical? And then it became a big search of saying, I want to figure out how these philosophies connect back to each other. And that became a, a major um, kind of project that ran through uh, Scarnhorst and other military philosophers um, and led back to Justice Lipsius, 
which was the first neo-Stoic that really took Stoicism and combined it with Christian theology right about the time that um, the modern era started. So 1600s, when the rifle came of era age um, in terms of a military weapon on the battlefield. So uh, back before the rifle, the train a bowman, say like an English longbowman, it took a lifetime where, hey, every Sunday you would ask people to go out and train several hours a day every Sunday to learn how to shoot this longbow to be proficient at it. But after the rifle showed up, it takes about two years to train a soldier. So that dramatically shifts kind of the construct of how fast you can assemble an army and how large you can build an army. And so new technology comes in, really simple to train soldiers. And then it becomes an issue of, well, countries need large groups of standing armies because rifles are so easy to train. So now you have to generate enough taxes to support that and you build nations around them. So, so a lot of my research has been kind of through the evolution of military history and how philosophy and specifically stoicism, how does that plug into structures of society, education, and where we are today and how much of what we do today is really stoic based or stoic influence that we don't really know it's there. So did you find a direct link between Aldridge and Justice Lipsius? Uh, so, so are you saying Partridge and Lipsius? Yes. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Yes. Um, so yes. So from Justice Lipsius, um, he wrote kind of the neo-Stoic philosophy. He also dabbled in military uh, military theory as well. But there was a, a count that came after him. Count uh, Romando Monte Cucoli was really the one that really wrote the vast majority of the original neo-Stoic military theory. And what I found was that in Prussia um, in 1778, um, uh, Henry Lee, one of our American founding fathers, was in Prussia trying to um, essentially get the king of Prussia to allow us to bring in British vessels that we had captured and sell these British naval vessels for profit during the war. Um, and eventually Prussia said, hey, we're staying out of this. We won't allow you to do that. But Henry Lee brought back a copy of the memoirs of Monte Cucoli to give to George Washington. And while I can't prove that it's the same book, there is a book of the right age at West Point inside their library to be that very book. So most likely kind of the American Revolution, that military philosophy was handed to George Washington. George Washington would, well, later have the idea of West Point. It would be established under Jefferson, but this book would be in the library that the superintendent would be consuming. So the interesting theory thing about that is it really connects to Clausewitz too, because Clausewitz's mentor, uh, Gerard Scarnhorst, his favorite person to quote was Monte Cucoli. So here we have kind of a neo-Stoic influence on Clausewitz, where you'll see neo-Stoic um, passages in Clausewitz about him talking about kind of the concept of what a military genius is. It's kind of the, the perfect model of a neo-Stoic military leader, but it's that trait where no matter how chaotic the battlefield is, the commander can kind of stay like a compass on a ship in the tossing oceans and be calm and steady and kind of be able to still use reason inside the chaos. 
Yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of a common um, image of like a military leader, you know, stoic or not. And that actually that brings up an interesting point and something that we talked a little bit about offline yesterday in regards to the nature of the military's relationship with stoicism, where, you know, there aren't a lot of avowed stoics in the military. I mean, there are people that call themselves stoic, but what they mean is, you know, lowercase stoic, yeah. as in, you know, there are certain characteristics. They don't really show their emotions. They handle stress well. Not so much that they accept virtue as the only good and, you know, some more core tenets of the ancient Hellenistic philosophy. Why do you think there is that connection there? Um, I mean, do you think that you think that these attributes of military demeanor and decorum are from stoicism or do you think that they're just some inherent truth there? So I always... I always think that we overlap these concepts and we throw titles on things that if I look back and I said, Hey, are you a stoic myself? I would say, no, hey, I'm a Emersonian idealist. Do I believe in the tenets that the stoics carried? Yes. Because what they identified was true. And it's, it goes back to what, well, what's the purpose of the philosophy? The philosophy itself is supposed to simplify your ability to engage and understand the world. And, uh, you could probably argue today that we have some anti-philosophy floating around in our culture that makes it harder for people to relate to each other than easier. But the Stoics, a lot of the original Stoics looked at Sparta um, as kind of this ideal culture that geared um, certain practices, wartime practices for military might. And they said, hey, we could adapt many of these Spartan practices, but we'll aim them for wisdom and virtue and we'll kind of develop this way of taking the best of Sparta, but gear it towards a more civilized, social focused philosophy. And then from there, I could say, well, that made sense. So you had um, the individuals that needed to have a highly practical functional philosophy in the most extreme environments, so combat. They're going to take the best of what worked on the battlefield from the Spartans. They're gonna add some stuff, continue to refine um, the philosophy. And then from the Stoics, Obviously, there's waves of generations, whether it's the Neo-Stoics or the Enlightenment area that keeps kind of building on these truths that we know that, hey, this part of philosophy agrees with what we've seen on the battlefield. It agrees with um, human experience. So you put people in kind of these most extreme environments, so our soldiers that need a very highly functional philosophy and uh, Stoicism is a very easy philosophy that they can latch onto just because it has the military traditions in it. It's added other truths that work well inside society. And I think unlike kind of modern resiliency programs, uh, the works that have survived um, from stoicism are so kind of poetic and great works whether you think of uh, Marcus Aurelius meditations, it just inspires the love of the reading and research into this very specific time frame, and it gives a connection to the past and an application for the future. So I think that's why there's a, a quite quite a big appeal to try to connect it back to Stoicism, or at least claim that title um, as Stoicism, even though a lot of Stoicism that we continue to teach or could be applied in the military will really absorb a lot of um, kind of the lessons we learned more in the modern era. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that this this is something interesting to me. And 
you know, the more I've studied philosophy and stoicism and looked back on my military experience, you know, there are a lot of people that talk about, well, you know, I'm stoic in the military because I do this, you know, training, you know, I, I mentally prepare for adversity or something in front of me, or, you know, I'm stoic because I, I look at the things in front of me and say, well, I accept that that's not in my control. And how do I pivot from here? How do I deal with the maneuvering enemy and reposition my troops? But when I hear that, even from when I first started, I was thinking or started studying philosophy. It's not, it doesn't necessarily sound stoic to me. I mean, it is, it's within stoicism, but it's just common sense. It's common military sense. It's practical that you could, and it's something you could come to easily just through rationally looking at how to comport yourself under pressure. Yeah. So, and this is a, a phrase and I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't quote the scholar that came up with it off the top of my head, but it's inside the uh, Megan McAllaren's uh, Before Operational Stress Program. It's a Stoic-based philosophy um, resiliency program now being tested in Canada with some great results. But there's a, a term they use, which is functional detachment and reattachment. So ideally, in the middle of the chaotic situation, you can recognize like, hey, my best friends just got shot or whatever happened. People got crushed underneath the truck. If you're an EMT and you need to go out there, you need to do, be able to act. So you have to momentarily be able to disconnect yourselves from your emotions so you can logically engage in solving that problem. But the other side of the house is, if you're truly going to be stoic, is you have to figure out a way after the trauma, after you've, whether you've gotten back to your patrol base or you've gotten back to a firehouse, when you're safe again, you have to re-engage with the emotions that you felt in that experience and then somehow process them through. And I, I think that at least in the, the modern army, we do a very bad job at teaching the re-attachment to the emotion side of the house because we think we think that we just you know shouldn't cry or shouldn't feel emotion. We should be kind of numb or above that, that type of kind of human emotion or reattachment. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, you know, you brought up that you want to identify as a stoic. And I mean, that's something, if you're on the internet, on forums, it's something that's kind of controversial in general. I mean, a lot of people's stance is just that all the stoics are dead. It's an ancient, you know, group of ancient dead people. Um, but I'm more in the camp of saying that if you are practicing stoicism insofar as you understand it, then sometimes it's just useful to have words that make sense you know, yes. and help categorize people based on their belief systems. Um, yeah. I was going to say, if I was going to go out in the crowd and talk to people about philosophy, it's a lot easier to say, Hey, I'm a military stoic than uh, try to explain Emersonian idealism to a person that's like, what, what the heck is that? So yeah, in a way it's an easy default. I think you bring up a good point because similar to what I was saying about there being a lot of common overlap between the military, just standard military philosophies and stoicism and where's the line um and the people that call themselves stoics a lot of times people who just that they use certain stoic therapeutic techniques for dealing with adversity which is totally fine uh, you know take what is useful to you and you know work that out however you want but my question to you would be do you think that there's value in really studying and understanding a philosophy uh or is it more valuable just to be eclectic you know, and I mean, Seneca even specifically talks about how 
you know, spend time with authors. Don't just, you know, speed read through things and walk away, which is like a popular self-help, you know, preaching, you know, like I've read a a thousand books this year. It's like, well, how much of that did you really internalize and understand? So I might kind of hint hint at where I stand, but I'm curious what you think about that. So, so first of all, I don't think that anyone can really ever adapt a philosophy. because I think ultimately we have to live our own philosophies. So we have to go out there, evaluate what we've been told and kind of the lessons other people have given us. And we either have to accept or reject, or at least we have to go through the process of testing um, these different philosophies. And um, I have nothing against being eclectic in terms of the study of philosophy. In, ter- in fact, I study quite wi- widely in terms of philosophies, even the philosophies I hate and try to keep up on just to try to understand them. But the one thing I, I would caution people in terms of jumping from one philosophy to the next is philosophy is most likely, or philosophies are typically built on a number of assumptions. And it's important to understand the assumptions that philosophers are operating off of their worldview. Because I've seen, um, I've seen even scholars today try to retranslate passages of Stoicism um, but using the underlying assumptions of like postmodernism. So it's really easy to confuse someone about what stoicism is by inserting kind of this overly focused um, collectivist attitude on cosmopolitanism so that individualism falls away. So when you're studying stoicism, it doesn't feel like there's personal responsibility of every citizen to be a good person or to improve or we're going to focus so much on the cosmopolitan action that, you know, to the point where you you have to stand up and say, Hey, if the Stoics were so concerned about their, the fellow man, why did they, they go to war? It's like, there's a difference between saying, Hey, I'm going to respect you and understand that you're a human being with emotions and, and feelings. And I'm going to try to not kill you on the battlefield, but it's not to say that the, the Stoics are pushovers or total hippies or, wouldn't protect their society versus other societies. So as you jump around and study philosophies, I just ask, you know, make sure that you're, you're correctly operating or reading those texts based on the underlying assumptions of those philosophies, and then learn to recognize when, you know, those underlying assumptions are, are wrong and incorrect. So don't adapt, um, certain elements of certain different philosophies and try to cram them all together because a lot of times their their underlying assumptions don't agree with each other. And it's not to say that you'll ever develop a philosophy without paradoxes. I don't think it's truly possible to have a perfect philosophy that doesn't in some way contradict each other. But I've seen a lot of people try to cram ideas that that really disagree with each other together. Yeah, I think that's really well spoken. And I agree with what you said. Um, I mean, obviously I'm partial to stoicism. It's been really useful to me, but you know, whenever I think about it, kind of like what I alluded to earlier, uh, a lot of guys will skim the meditations and take one or two things. And then, like you said, they don't really understand the core concept of this or the core concept of a different philosophy. And then they try and they just jam them together. And I just think that even if stoicism isn't for you or you know epicureanism or whatever philosophy it's worth like you said understanding the 
the core doctrine, like the, the really having a good grip on it and then analyze and assessing it for yourself as to whether or not it's rational or, you know, meshes with your way of life. But you really don't get the, the, the most value out of it unless you spend time trying to understand what they're talking about. Well, yeah. So yeah, I totally agree there. I think that, yeah, I think one of the most difficult things operating kind of in the modern era and really to the downfall of the, the U S army is we in the military understand that we've lost some type of philosophical construct and, uh, the U.S. Army in general realized that right after post um, the post-Vietnam era, where the conduct and behaviors of soldiers is really bad, and there was a big project to bring in uh, the Army values. So um, they've evolved through the years, and now we have that that leadership acronym: um, you know, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage. Um, and the one thing I really hate about those constructs is, first of all, they were value systems and not a virtue-based system, but you even had steps along the way where they recognized that we didn't have a funded or foundational philosophy, but it seems like we couldn't connect as an institution back to a philosophy, whether that's we're too scared institutionally to say, hey, this is the philosophy of the army because maybe we'll offend people or you know, maybe there's a breakdown in terms of how to connect that through it. And even I would say modern academia in terms of philosophy is highly politically biased. So it would be, it would be difficult to identify the experts to even help the army get to where they want to go without some type of negative influence happening there. But I would love the army to go back and say, we don't need values. We need virtues. So what are the virtues of, of an army soldier? So switch out of principle ethics into, you know, virtue-based ethics again. And uh, that would be a significant jump for the army, but I think it's one that ultimately we need to, to get back to if we want to really have a refined warrior culture or that, that professionalism that we say we have, but we're really still, still not where we want to be at. Yeah. And that's all, something I talked about a lot with uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Jarrett and his stance was, as you suggested, the military is just afraid. They're afraid to put their foot down and say, this is our philosophy. And, you know, like they don't want to impede on whatever your, you know, pre-held presupposed beliefs are. So they just provide these like pretty, like you said, you know, the leadership acronym of values, which were worthless to me when I was in the military. I mean, as far as I was concerned, the only, the only thing that I studied that had any impact on me was the Ranger Creed. And even that felt like something that was just said, it was just wrote. Yeah. And, it, I mean, and that depends on, you know, the individual too. There were, were a lot of guys who really took it to heart and I think it showed in their career and how successful they were. So one of the things that you've worked on just to kind of shift gears here and what you talked about during the Stoicon military event was hardening training and yes. mental resiliency training. And I'll be honest with you, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind when you were talking about ruck marching was, duh, like, <laughs> this yep. is the military. You do hard shit for a long time and, you know, it kind of builds resiliency and that's just kind of standard stuff. But I think there was a little bit more that you were suggesting with that than just, 
do hard PT? Yes. So my, my training or what I've been personally doing really stems back again to that scholar I talked about, Captain Alton Partridge. Um, he was known for his incredible ability to march. So once a quarter, um, he would go out and walk somewhere between 30 and 80 miles a day. And he would do that for like a week at a time. And it wasn't that he was marching across flat ground. He would march um, up to the top of mountains um, in the New England area. And this was before a lot of maps were established. So he would march up a mountain, um, take a barometer in the sextant, and then figure out the, the elevation of that mountain. And then you carry on. And uh, we have several historical records of him sending letters to Thomas Jefferson about maps with the elevation of different mountains marked out. Marked out. But the, the reason why I kind of endorsed that, or at least when I got into the practice of trying to copy his procedures, is I think the, just the, the nature of rucking connects very well with the military. So if, if you think about the military, we can think about shooting weapons and doing other things, but really moving with your equipment. I couldn't imagine something more closely related to a soldier. So even the Pogue has to, at one time, move with his equipment. Um, so not everyone gets to close with the enemy, nor do you need everybody in the army to do that. But everybody needs to be able to move and function. And the reason why I like uh, marching is it trains for fatigue in a way that isn't common with other types of fitness training. Now, if you're out there trying to deadlift, whatever, 400 plus pounds, you're an amazing type of guy and all power to you. Um, but if you try the ruck, 50, 60 miles in a day, something insane. Um, it is a process that takes all day. So you're going to be miserable the first part of the day and then absolutely miserable afterwards or further into the day. So I know this for myself. I, I can get to about mile 40 and be, you know, semi-functional, but after mile 40 on the ruck, I am, I'm hating everything about it. So it's the question, right? Who goes out for a 60 mile ruck? You know, everyone would say you're perfectly fine quitting. So you have to get to a stage where everybody would say it's okay to quit, but you have to stay in that, that period. But if you ever try a 60 mile ruck, you make it to mile 40, you look down at your watch and you realize, Hey, I'm absolutely suffering. My, my feet are swollen. My shoulders are tired. You know, my muscles are completely fatigued, but I'm going to look down at my watch and realize I got like four or, you know, four to six hours left before I can finish. So I'm going to be in a, a, a mental situation for four to six hours where I'm going to have my brain telling me just constantly, like, what are you doing? Just stop. No one will blame me if you stop. And it's the question of, can you bear that fatigue for prolonged periods of time? And I think that period is really where you you start to train at a level that's beyond just whatever going out and doing PT or running. And the other um, interesting thing about walking or rucking, um, if you're doing it at a reasonable pace, you're fully oxygening your brain. So lots of research out there, you're gonna be using lots more of your cognitive abilities. So you're in a state where you're more aware of what you're doing compared to like trying to run a marathon where you might be a hypoxic. So here you have a highly oxygenated brain, super creative with nothing to do. And it really gives you a chance of really practicing that endurance of fatigue. And even as bad as it gets, whether it's physically, um, just psychologically wanting to quit, 
I found it's a perfect place to start trying to practice those, those stoic tenets of like, what are you reflecting on? What are you thinking about? Um, if you know you have 20 miles left in a ruck march, are you thinking about the fact that you have a tiny blister on your foot? So every step you're realizing that, or are you going to think about whatever, you know, your kids and their giggles and their smiles, you know, so you have a choice about what to think about. And it's really a great place to practice. Hey, what am I going to focus on? What am I not going to focus on? You know, am I going to be able to prove to myself I can bear this fatigue? And then more importantly, if you took me up right now and you threw me back in combat, like when I first deployed in um, 2009, I remember we being awake for like 26 hours, we hit the ground and then it became a matter of, hey, right seat, left seat ride. So it was, you know, after 26 hours of being awake, you have another 14 hours of duty trying to take notes and pay attention uh, before you have a chance to the rest, we had a very short rest, and then we had a, a stand to for two days, wait for two days. Um, you just don't want to be in that type of combat environment where you have to bear fatigue and then have nothing to compare it to. Where now it'd be like, oh, if you want me to sit in a talk and be awake for two days, yeah, it's going to be miserable, but I've, I've walked 60 miles in a day. It's, you know, it's far easier. I, I have confidence in myself to be able to, to do the strains of combat because i've pushed myself harder um that whole train hard fight easy construct well i think in hearing you and i'd be interested to hear on whether or not i'm taking the right things out of this but i'm hearing a little bit of just the typical military training modality of doing something hard for a long time and i agree with you like moving underweight is the most difficult thing you do in the military so you know, there's all the things, you know, going through selection, doing things like that, and all that's really hard and you want to quit and they make it miserable for you. But for me, nothing was more difficult than moving with 60 pounds on my back, you know, five kilometers through the Afghani mountains under night vision. And, you know, you see really tough guys have a hard time do that. So, I mean, it really is, is a uniquely uh, useful exercise for resiliency training in the way you're describing it. But I think it, the way that you're approaching it is different than the way that the military normally does, where normally it's just like, throw your ruck on, you're going to do it. And, you know, if you don't like it, you know, who fucking cares? Like, just put your rucksack on and come with me. And it, it kind of goes back again to this conversation I had with Thomas Jarrett, where we talked about how the military doesn't give you any philosophy or really not, they don't even give you any resiliency training. They don't teach you how to think about pain or struggle and how it might actually be an adaptive, positive situation, something that's virtue building. Um, and a situation like this would be a great opportunity for a leader who's trying to inculcate those values to, all right, we're going to go on a 20 mile ruck march and beforehand, maybe take two bullet points from the in Chiridion, the handbook of Epictetus and just say, I want you to think about, is this really good or bad? Or is it just your opinion that makes it so? And, yeah. you know, like, and then you use it as like a structured way to drive home these resiliency techniques that can further benefit you under pressure. Now, on the flip side is if you don't do that, you still get the benefit of just knowing that you're tough enough to do that hard thing if you make it through. But I think that you leave half the value on the table 
when you don't also frame it mentally before you go into that? Well, I, I agree with you. And I've, I listen to a number of audiobooks when I'm out rucking and to the point where I can say, I think I engage more with thoughts. Once again, it goes back to the research that you really get more oxygen and blood flow to your brain when you're, you're walking at the correct moderate pace to really think about whatever you're trying to digest. And yeah, it's a great time to throw in uh, additional resources in terms of education or thought or meditation on um, a couple questions. And, you know, it's interesting because I've, I've, I've talked to other senior leaders, like I had a colonel just tell me, you know, hey, you just need to put on Pandora and listen to rock music and not think about anything, just music itself. And there's a lot to be said about, you know, a fast paced tempo to keep you going and moving you at a set pace along the way for fitness training. But I think you lose the psychological um, aspect of it. So if you can keep both your mind and your body engaged at the same time, um, I think you get a much, a much better experience out of that, whether it's unplugging everything from from uh, whether it's audiobooks or music and just dealing with hours and hours of silence where you have to deal with your own thoughts, which I think that we never do in modern society, but it's something that, you know, if you're sitting as a soldier out on some hilltop looking out, you're going to have to pay attention to what's going on around you and then deal with that kind of boredom in a way um, that, you know, you don't drift off and get yourself killed about what's going on around you. Um, or you, you know, when you're out rucking, you listen to a book and you spend the time thinking these great thoughts or milling over those ideas. And, uh, you know, there's something magical about going out and rucking and listening to Stoics as you walk down the path. And because um, the Stoics themselves, you know, they're named from the, the Stoa or the porch and they're known for, you know, walking while they're teaching and instructing. So movement while you're consuming these things would have been the closest thing to what actually happened in um, ancient Greece. So in a way, you know, listening to an audiobook about the meditations is far more appropriate in the modern era than sitting down and reading the book at a desk side. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point. And I didn't know any of that about the oxygenation of the brain. What is the appropriate pace that you're trying to achieve on these walks? You know, that's the one thing I didn't look up and <laughs> take a look at. So um, basically the, the speed I walk I know I walk about 20 minute miles and uh, I know the army produced a whole bunch of charts, but if you're trying to keep up with the actual army standard charts, more than likely you're pushing way too hard. So if you're doing whatever, 12 miles in four, three hours, four hours, I can't remember, 15 minute miles, mm -hmm. uh, more than likely, unless you're an exceptional athlete, you're going to be fatiguing yourself. Um, so I, I stick around 20 minute miles and I wish I could, um, Wish I had a good way to tell people how to how to do that. Well, if you have a, a pulse ox on a fitness device, I would say, you know, never allow your pulse oximetry to drop before below uh, 95% or so. Um, at that point, you're starting to take away your cognitive functions versus um, add to them. Okay. I, I just, this is kind of random, but I want to go back to ancient times. Is I, I know, so you've studied um the nature of stoicism and how it's affected the military and i asked you about spheris or i made a note of it and you you mentioned that you're not an expert on that but 
I just wanted to tell you because I, I think it's a really interesting story. You know, the Stoics looked at the Spartans for examples a long time ago, you know, whenever they were founded. And uh, there's stories about guys hugging bronze statues in the cold, uh, you know, toughen their mind. And a Stoic walks by, or sorry, a Spartan walks by and says, is it even really that cold to you anymore? And he said, no, not, not anymore. He's like, well, then why do you even do it? Yeah. You know, so like there are these direct correlations between the Spartans and the Stoics and the Cynics. But there's also a corollary relationship where whenever King Cleomenes III was trying to reinstitute some form of pride in the Spartan culture again, I mean, they were at that point, they had, didn't have the agoge, the childhood training pipeline set up anymore. Uh, he actually brought in his tutor, Spheris, a Stoic. And Spheris helped him in reinstituting the agoge and, re, you know, recrafting the nation under a virtue-based system, which he intelligently crafted as Lycurgan. You know, everything, instead, instead of being like a Stoic philosophical principle, it was a Lycurgan principle, hailing back to the original founder of the agoge and everything that Spartans thought was great. So... Yeah. There's a little bit of a, there's more than just taking from the Spartan culture. The Stoics actually gave back at a certain point and helped build back Sparta into some semblance of what it once was. Yeah. And we can really look at Xenophon, even though he technically predates Stoicism. You could say Xenophon really was a, a proto-Stoic in terms of having most of the ideas. Um, I don't know if you've read his Anabasis, but if you look for motivational military speeches, Here's a guy that's, you know, he's got 10,000 troops. But anyway, he's stuck in the middle of a, a foreign empire. He's got to fight his way out. He's got nothing but infantry. The enemy's got cavalry and archers and all sorts of other devices. And, you know, anyone in the ancient time period would tell you, you know, infantry against horses, you're pretty much dead. But here he's giving these great speeches about how infantrymen can strike harder because they're on the ground versus the cavalrymen. So, is this great way of focusing on just every every aspect where they're superior and constantly reminding his men of this. Um, but he actually gets exiled from Athens and he spent he spent some time inside Sparta and becomes a Spartan general as well. And uh, really Xenophon did? Yeah. And wow, uh, yeah. if it wasn't for Xenophon, we wouldn't have anything written from Sparta. So there's no surviving written text. So the so the uh polity of the uh, Lacrimonians um, or Spartans um, that we have that lay out kind of the laws of Lycurgus were written by Xenophon, recorded by Xenophon. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I know about his other writing and it's on my expansive reading list to get around to, but I know just from reading his dialogues of Socrates as opposed to Plato's, I like his style of writing. I like his version of Socrates better. It seems more realistic. Um, doesn't seem like a construct that Plato's using as a puppet. Yes. But I, I know that that's controversial opinion in the, you know, philosophy community. Um, so, you know, you and I both approached philosophy out of a personal interest, which segues into you've done work on self-directed learning within the military. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what your work, work there has been and like what that looks like? So the army uses the term self-development. So it's the idea that soldiers will go out and learn um, on their own time out of their own interests. And the army's had a lot of problems 
um, with the concept because the army likes to be in control and self-development needs to be something that an individual directs. So a lot of times the army would come out and make kind of contradictory statements where they would say, hey, we want you to self-direct your learning by studying X. And then you realize, well, that's a contradiction. That's just training. That's not self-development. But um, I was an ROTC instructor for a number of years, and I would have um, cadets every once in a while, um, you know, brand new kids wanting to join the military, ask me questions like, hey, I'm weak on X. What can I do to improve X? And then I realized that I would be giving about the three, three standard responses, which would be read, which is the most common self-development technique ever. But then I would default back to the army training principles. So you need to go to this course. You need to sign up to do this job. And then I realized I just stepped out of what the army classifies as self-development. So when I was going through my doctoral research, I realized you know, this would be super easy if I just gathered up a whole bunch of battalion commanders from ROTC, lieutenant colonels. These guys know everything. I'll just send them a survey about, you know, each of the leadership characteristics for the Army. I'll ask them questions, what they should do to self-development in each of these. They'll give me a whole bunch of responses back. I'll throw it together in a pamphlet. I'll get my degree, and I'll have a book that I can sell saying, hey, this is the guide to self-development. So easy. And, huh? Yeah, so easy. And uh, what I got back was our lieutenant colonels didn't really understand what self-development was. They, they weren't very knowledgeable in terms of having support for themselves. Um, they could eventually agree on the definition of it. Um, but in terms of the recommendations that they were handing back and in terms of what to do for self-development, something like 30% of the responses actually fit into self-directed learning. The rest was go get this job or go to this training course. Um, so it really started me uh, looking into um, the problem of how do we define self-development and then how can we kind of encourage correct self-development or build in time uh, for our soldiers to truly explore um, what, they're, what they're interested in in a way that ultimately walk away with a love of learning. And whether it's American public education, American university systems, we, we use a style of teaching called pedagogy, which the assumption is the teacher knows everything, the student doesn't have experience. So we're going to have the teacher give a briefing, give materials, uh, the teacher knows everything, the students are supposed to absorb that information and then be able to regurgitate it on some type of test to prove their mastery. Well. That's great for children or anyone that doesn't view themselves as independent. But once you have someone that views themselves as being able to think by themselves, like soldiers um, or adults, and you can even do it with young children if they are kind of independent enough, they want to connect learning to their experiences. They want to learn things that get them towards something that they're interested in being able to do or being able to function. So the leader in that context, Anjigoji, they take on the role of kind of a master in terms of um, guiding a student to the answers they want instead of having all the knowledge. And uh, that, also mean, that also means the teacher could be sitting, like if you imagine an army course, like I could be instructing as, you know, an O4 major. Hey, I'm, the perception is I know everything I'm teaching this course, but if I'm teaching this according to Andrew Goji, I might have 20 students. We might be talking about something. 
And someone in the course might raise their hand and say, hey, I have experience doing this in combat. Well, in pedagogy, it's really hard for the instructor to basically turn over the stage. Where in andragogy, it's we're going to share our experiences. We're going to discuss ideas. Um, we're going to work as a team to solve a problem, but there's not as much regulated material to cover um, inside the course. Or if you came to me alone and said, hey, I'm super interested in, I don't know, I'll give an example. So you're a racism. Hey, what? Oh, I'm super interested in stoicism. So I'd say, hey, that's great. It's great to learn about philosophy. Um, so, hey, I, I would suggest your first book be um, something that's a secondary source, more modern language to get you into it. So we'll give you Donald Robinson's How to Think Like a Roman Empire or Emperor. And then, you know, I'm going to give you a list of the, the major Stoic works. So the Meditation, Epictetus, Seneca. And then I'm going to give you a whole big, long list of other, other authors. And I'm going to say, hey, go, go read this first book, get a basic understanding, and then explore the rest of the books and materials as you wish. And maybe you might say, hey, I'm really interested in military stoicism. So I'll, I'll highlight all the Stoics that were soldiers. So you might go read them instead of the rest. And then you would come back to me and basically tell me what you'd learned. And that would be the course. And uh, if for some reason there was you know, specific steps that you had to learn, then it would be my job as an instructor to make sure that you caught kind of the major, like maybe major underlying assumptions of Stoicism. So I'd check to make sure you know that but kind of the bulk of the material or time would you be you kind of reading the works that you found most interesting and you would be able to, to switch. If you didn't understand this book, you could switch to something else that you could understand. So it's a much different style of teaching. Yeah. And I mean, I, I might be projecting a little bit here, but I think that that's one that most guys in the military guys and gals could relate to. I mean, I think that a lot of people that join the military, although it's a very hierarchical structure and discipline structure. You get a lot of really fiercely independent and aggressive yeah. people, you know, and I know looking back on school, I mean, hell, I'm reading academic philosophy books for fun these days. And if you yeah. had asked me in high school, if that's something I would ever be interested in, the answer would be no, are you high? Like, of, of course, that, that's a ridiculous thing to waste my time on. But, uh, you know, so for me, anecdotally, I sympathize with that, that, anti-pedagogical system but another good example is like all the guys and gals that get out and then they go back to university and they've got you know they're 24 years old yeah. and they've been to combat and they have a firm grip on how the world works or not you know at least they understand the disparities between let's say a third world country where they were operating and the united states of america and it's helped them you know, provide context to all these intellectual ideas. And then they go into a university classroom where they've got a 25 year old or 26 year old kid, essentially trying to tell them how the world works and the nuances, or, you know, even getting into specific military related themes or war related themes where they have absolutely no nuance in their thinking. And these soldiers are just told to stuff it. Like if you want to get yes. a grade, if you want to pass, you need to shut up and just regurgitate what the teacher wants to hear. And it seems antithetical to actual education. Yes. Well, and to some, some degree, I would say that when, if we have soldiers out there interested in military stoicism, a lot of the resources they engage in um, may not be appropriate for them. So 
I, I'm a very firm believer in saying that a philosopher has to have some type of trauma in their lives. And uh, I'm, I'm not here to say that every military stoic or someone that operates in that sphere has to have combat experience. Because I think that um, to some degree, it's luck. So if I would go back to whatever, a generation before me, the Cold War era, guys might serve their whole entire career and never be asked to go fight. But they 20 years least, ago. Yeah, at least spent their whole career training in that 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 culture developing the skills um so you had steve roberts on your your podcast great guy actually i love talking about stoicism with him I, i'd highly respect him um but the some of the some of the philosophers out there or academics out there you you look at and say hey, you spent your whole entire career inside academia and now you're trying to imprint this philosophy on the military or basically sell books or sell courses towards the military where it's like, well, you've never, you've never had to use it the way the military would use it. And sometimes that I don't know, either comes across as just profiteering falls to me, or it's like someone selling you something that has no experience of doing it. They're just outside uh, the scope. Of I agree with you. And I've tried to toe that line between, you know, there's modern academics that have wrote all these great books that have helped me understand these complex issues and I in no way would want to take away from their experience because they don't have firsthand experience. I mean, I don't, you know, we're rational creatures. We don't need firsthand experience to have, you know, well thought out ideas about things. But that being said, it's hard not to over hear them overlaying their modern sensibilities on issues around things like killing people in combat or the death penalty, things like that, that, well, I mean, is it good or bad? I mean, like, let's, let's look at it philosophically. And if we're talking about stoicism, let's look at it through a stoic lens, but don't just come at me with this. Oh, it's bad with like a modern, uh, yeah. you know, liberal American uh, stance on the matter. And I don't say liberal as in Democrat or Republican. I mean, just like, you know, our modern sensibilities. So I think that the one kind of unique thing about the military, or I, I should say first responder community, because I, I do believe it's larger than military can be used in emergency medicine or police fire, is there's this demand to be practical and the understanding that the world will be messy. And I think that whether you know it's an EMT going out to a call or police or fire, or definitely soldiers being thrown into throw a country where you're faced with trying to identify as this guy an insurgent or just a whether peasant in the wrong place and it's it's complicated so even you know even if the hey this guy's strapped with explosives walking towards my base and the question becomes you know did someone just kidnap his family is he really a terrorist or is he just really a victim that's being used as a portable bomb so um i think that those communities get exposed to that kind of gray area of life where it's it's too complicated for human understanding. So that a certain limitation to philosophies, we can say, hey, they're never going to solve all questions where I think if you get too far into academia, where you get more of a sense of utopianism, where you could design inside the classroom a philosophy that would, you know, be inseparable. And it's, it's one thing to, you know, have years to go through a moral problem about what you need to do. And it's another thing to, you know, have three seconds to make a decision about whether you're going to pull a trigger or not and how you approach things are totally different. And I don't know, at least the soldier has to allow for, I guess, more forgiveness and mercy and flexibility in their philosophies, I should say. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And honestly, I, I'm really looking forward to um, someone I spoke to earlier, Leonidas Constantikos. I was fortunate enough to get to read his dissertation, and w- which was on Stoic just war theory. And he really spent a lot of time with these ideas around, you know, is this applicable? Is virtue, the virtue ethics of Stoicism applicable to soldiering? How would it be done? Things like that. And I'm looking forward to whenever he publishes a book on it, because it, you know, it talks about these things where you're saying like, well, how do you have a, a textbook philosophy that applies to a situation where you have to make a split second decision? And, you know, does it have the flexibility to allow for error to where yes. if you make a slight error in the moment, then all of a sudden are you in complete contradiction with your philosophical tenets? Yeah. Well, so, and yeah, I can explain something from my own experience. So obviously medical service corps officer, I'm not a trigger puller by any means, but when I went to Iraq in 2009, um, one of the things was the Iraqi healthcare system was not functioning. It wasn't purchasing its own medical supplies. And, you know, whatever, January 1st, 2010, it was realized that, hey, these, this country isn't functional. We're getting ready to leave. We have to make this country functional. So we're going to stop um, giving medical supplies because up until then, they had just been basically getting supplies for free off the coalition forces. So why spend Iraqi money if you can get supplies for free? And then you have this kind of the big moral question. You know, I was a ENT paramedic before I ever joined the army, but now instead of, you know, someone calling 911, I'm going to come, come to you. I'm going to render aid. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what your color is. I don't even care if you pay or not. I'm just going to come out, do my job, get you to the hospital, save your life. But here in combat, it was, well, we're going to take these basically semi trucks full of medical supplies and burn them while you have doctors or patients coming to the gate and begging for medical supplies and just being in that, that environment of saying, am I doing good to a country? Like what was the justice in that situation? So if I would have handed over the medical supplies, you know, then their medical system refuses to work it, you know, do we have to tolerate a certain level of injustice to try to get a system to revolve? And then who, who bears the kind of, moral injury or psychological burden of saying I'm the guy that inflicted suffering or was this suffering that serve a purpose or not is the question. One of the things I like about stoicism in regards to the military, you know, really defined again by talking to Leo and reading some of his thoughts is that it is a very flexible system in terms of doing what you think is appropriate in the moment where you know, for you in the moment or for an individual, it might be to say, all right, I'm going to be the cog in the machine because this is, you know, the virtuous action as a member of the military to follow orders where for someone else. And it, you know, it really does even fluctuate based on your individual nature to a certain degree. That person might say, no, I'm going to contradict orders and I'm going to take whatever punishment comes and I'm going to do, you know, X, Y, or Z. And it, it gets really messy whenever I think you're, you're dealing with things a little more nuanced when it comes to money and supplies and things like that. It's a little bit more clear cut whenever you're looking at like my lie and you're like, well, what do you do? It's oh, like, yeah. well, yeah. the right answer obviously is to intervene at risk of your own life or punishment. Um, from a stoic perspective, I would argue it's that one's more clear cut, but then again, even there there's nuance, which is again, why I I'm a fan of this as it regards to the military. Well, I think that's the, 
I guess, problem with insanity or even to a certain level of compassion fatigue. It's like you at some point don't realize that you're being mentally degraded after constant exposure to certain circumstances. So like the gradual change in behaviors or shifts, it's, uh, it's very difficult to um, apply moral standards in those type of high intensity environments. And then to add kind of complexity of kind of coming back home and trying to deal with your experiences, the human memory is um, quite inventive, I should say. So I'm not sure if you ever had the experience where you get put in a high intensity situation, you're, you're only capable of filtering so much information. You take action, what you deem appropriate at the time. And then later on, you might be told some type of other information that would have changed the decision process. Well, eventually your memory is going to integrate that new information into the original memory. So then it becomes you remembering that you made the wrong decision decision in the time and not the fact that you didn't have the information when you're making that choice. So um, it's, it's quite interesting how how just the nature of human memory also plays a role in, in needing philosophies that can deal with kind of the extreme of combat. And it might not be a philosophy that keeps you sane, but it's a philosophy that can help you climb back out of kind of the trauma of combat after you experience. Well, I don't know anything about before operational stress, which you've referenced that program in Canada, but I would say that the argument that you're making from my perspective is an argument for teaching philosophy prior to exposure to where yes. you have the philosophical framework to contextualize the situation that you're in that, you know, the, the only moment that exists is the current moment that we're in right now. And the only thing that you can do is what's appropriate for you to do right now with the information that you have. And, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and armchair quarterback that whenever people look back on hard memories and say, well, I could have, should have done this. And I know this differently now. And I'm not saying that it's easy, but I do think with the proper framework of looking at the situation, you, it will aid in the healing process. Yeah. So, yeah, in, that really brings up a point. So the Army, I think it was 2006 or 2007, adapted a Penn State resiliency program. And it was done at the time because there was record numbers of suicides happening inside the military. So the military bought an off-the-shelf program. I believe it was originally designed for preteens and then forced it into the Army to try to alleviate suicide rates. And it's been using that program ever since. And it's unfortunate because... I think uh, Dr. McAllen's before operational stress program is far superior because it's actually built for the first responder um, community. So it's, it's taught at the adult level. It uses the correct psychological terms. It does kind of prime the pump in terms of, hey, we're going to give you the resiliency programs before you get exposed. And then we're going to give you some type of, kind of continual um, kind of booster shots, if you say, of this program, um, but it will at least prime you. So even, even if you don't understand how to use it now, when you go through your first experience, you'll get um, kind of prepared to what you should do um, going through that traumatic experience. And then I'm hoping one day that we can get that piloted down in the U.S. military, especially U.S. Army, because unfortunately the program they bought um, – isn't designed at adult level. It's not designed for a free thinking soldier that's supposed to be adaptive, responsive. It isn't written 
using the correct psychological language. Um, the language itself was dumbed down in terms. So if uh, I wanted to go learn more about, you know, emotional detachment, reattachment, I can't Google that because it doesn't give you the right terms to even search on your own for more information. Um, and I do think that by connecting it there's advantage for the movie because there's a ton of people interested in like Sparta, you watch 300. So you get naturally sucked into those really great historical texts in a way that, you know, the Penn State resiliency program never inspired me to go find some random psychology manual. manual. But, you know, if I'm reading about Xenophon, I might go pick up a, a book about Xenophon and really enjoy Xenophon. Masterati? Yeah, yeah, I got you. There you go. Yeah. And, you know, you could also go, go further if you're trying to market it and just call it Spartan resiliency training or something like that. Um, So in self-directed training, one of the things I was wondering about as you were talking about it is, you know, it's, so it's self-directed. You want to encourage people to be interested and teach themselves, which in my experience as an adult, I find myself constantly going back to different topics and really digging into them and having this strong fascination and spending a lot of time studying them in a way that I wouldn't if I were forced to read chapter two and provide an essay. Um, but there has to be a left and right limit there, I would think. So that someone's like, oh, I want to study sci-fi or I want to study fiction. Yep. It's totally cool. So interesting enough, at the very heart, and I'd like to use the definition I found in the report by um, Ponton, Derek, Derek, and Carr. They wrote a book report about ROTC, but they simplified self-development into a four-word four definition, which is choosing learning over non-learning activities. We don't know where the next innovation, the Save the Battlefield, is going to come from. So if you're interested in World War I aircraft and you read a book, you might find out how back in World War One, they were turning broken aircrafts that could barely fly into drones to release over enemy targets and go hit something. There's stories in a World War One book about how to shoot down a hot air balloon that I could give to a modern 21st century soldier and say, this is directions how to shoot down a drone. You just have to adapt it to the modern technology. So when it comes to the the, the self-development, it's really, I want you to go engage in learning, but I don't want to restrict what you're learning. I want you to be interested in something new. If it could apply back to the military, that's great. <clears throat> but so much stuff applies back to the military. You want to learn a different language? Great. Go learn a different language because eventually we're going to need that somewhere in the military. If not, it's going to teach you language structure. So you're ba- better able to, to use English. And, uh, it's really allowing an individual to explore. And that connects with the concept of being a polymath, which is kind of the, what you call the jack of all trades versus a monomath. So probably the most famous um, polymath in history would be you know, Leonardo da Vinci, right? The guy came up with everything, <clears throat> but he started off as a painter. And to make paints um, back in the day, you had to go to an apothecary to get various different substances to mix together to make different colors. Well, out of interest in painting and then going to an apothecary, basically a pharmacist, he started asking questions about medicine. So he learned about medicine, started drawing all sorts of anatomical designs. That led him into engineering because how things function and work together. Um, interest in engineering caused him to 
you know, study architecture and then designs for everything from aircraft to zeppelins to submarines to everything else. So self-development in its purest form is following your interests and ignoring academic boundaries that, that currently exist. And we never know kind of where those, those thought trends will end up or uh, take you. Um, so I, I can say, luckily, I myself ran across something um, relatively interesting about four years ago, I met up with a whole bunch of Marine Corps low distinctions, and they were using a statistical method called availability to analyze the readiness of their trucks. And it dealt with taking a look at readiness over time versus a single day's measurement of how many trucks are ready. It's how long does it take a truck to get ready, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I realized, hey, I could, I could take that formula and apply it to medicine about how many days of the year is a soldier medically ready versus not ready for deployment? And that started a huge calculation that really produced a system that now can predict readiness, medical readiness for National Guard 12 months into the future with a 96% accuracy. And here it's just taking a formula that I've been using for decades in one field and dropping it down on the other. So I, you know, it's it's going out there learning for learning's sake and then drawing what's useful from one, one field and being able to apply it next. That would really expand the capabilities of our, our armies and our, our soldiers. And then individually, it just keeps us interesting and active, active and uh, kind of continually growing as an individual. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I'm glad you're doing work on it. Um, you know, and there's a stereotype of people in the military being, you know, knuckleheads that are only interested in getting drunk and bar fighting. And there's definitely a lot of those guys. Yeah. But uh, I've also, I'll say the most interesting people I've ever met are from the military. Some of the most interesting nuanced conversations I've ever had are not out of the most highly educated, but you know, out of people who volunteer to serve is you're really put in a situation that's very eclectic in terms of culture. Um, so I think that what you're talking about develops that richness of experience and interest and further, you know, strengthens our military. So, I mean, I think it's a great idea. In a lot well, of ways, it's telling people to go enjoy their hobby because really it's, if it wasn't for modern education and we could even go back to the, the Prussian model. So Prussia 1800s designed a system of education that was supposed to produce um, students that were more obedient to the state. And unfortunately, it helped lead to major wars like War One, because it was really easy to either recruit or draft more citizens because they became more docile. But it was regimented, single-focused classes for set periods of time. They would start with a bell, end as a, with a bell, um, something that was really unnatural to humans up until that point. And uh, I would really love to see a future where people actually enjoy learning and you don't get the kids coming home from school just saying they hate their classes or uh, it would be wonderful to have a person walk out of college and say, hey, I actually learned something. I enjoyed something. I'm going to continue my reading and research uh, by myself because it's just something enjoyable. Because uh, what we're seeing in society now, it's a lot of a lot of individuals, if they're not in formal education classes, they are just simply not reading, not not exploring, not pushing their boundaries or not being productive uh, on their free time. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it'd be a lot better if dudes were sitting around the cough, you know, reading a book instead of playing Angry Birds or 
Yes. Taking off, wasting so much distractions. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a time that's uniquely suited to uh, get in the way of our self-development since all these companies are vying for our attention. Well, you've already touched on this, but I think it's a good segue and we can end it here in terms of self-directed learning. If someone were interested in, let's say Stoic philosophy, and they wanted to learn more practically in terms of how to make use of it, where would you suggest they start? Because there is conflicting uh, opinions on this in the community. So I, I do believe that kind of your first text should give you the basic understandings of the philosophy and probably be written in the modern language versus going straight to the to the the primary sources to begin with. So I do highly recommend Donald Robinson's How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Um, I like it not only because it covers kind of the background story of what Marcus Aurelius was doing when he was writing the meditation, and there's a uh, a credible amount of kind of military history in there um, that really expands on the actual practical use of that and really provides a historical context. So when you go back to the reading, the meditations, it makes a lot more sense. Otherwise, if I handed someone interested in stoicism and meditation, you know, the first chapter is about him thanking a whole bunch of people that you just don't understand, like, what's going on. Um, but I do think after that book, you should go kind of to the primary sources. So Marcus Aurelius, um, Seneca, Epictetus. Um, I would say um, with some caution that I, at least myself, I tend to avoid um, what's called the modern Stoics. Um, so modern kind of retakes on Stoicism often like I said earlier in the interview, they often supplement a modern assumption of philosophy to replace the original Stoic philosophy. So if you ever run across a Stoic text that talks about standpoint theory, like, i.e. you can never understand the experience of being a white male unless you're a white male, that is not ancient Stoic um, in terms of the concept of race or how they would view truth in terms of, hey, there's a singular truth, we're all trying to understand it together, but theoretically we could gain understanding of that one common truth. But if you find references to many truths, um, you're really into something that's uh, anti-philosophy. That's not, it's not stoicism. It's a, it's a reimagining of modern politics by using the stoics to try to support a modern claim. Um, However, a lot of people don't like reading um, just straight philosophy, and I'm a big believer in having archetypal stories um, that really will um, explain how to use the philosophy in the story. So Xenophon's Anabasis is a great example of kind of some proto-Stoic, how, how commanders talk to their troops, kind of what, what would happen inside war, how, how figures react. Uh, one of the best, most famous war stories ever. Um, it was used for thousands of years in the trained soldiers, and I, I do highly recommend it. Uh, Virgil's Aeneid is uh, another archetypal story that was basically the story of how the Trojans fled from Troy after the Trojan War and how they settled into Rome it really gave the legendary birth of the Roman emperor empire. And it gave kind of the expectations to behave um, as a stoic Roman. And the thing I like about that story is it shows stoic characters making mistakes and then following 
from grace in terms of being able to control their emotions. So it really portrays stoicism in a more, a more human experience where if we go out and try to apply this um, philosophy, we'll make mistakes along the way and we can correct ourselves. And that's perfectly natural. Um, if you want something more kind of in the modern era, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe is a wonderful trilogy. Most people don't understand it's an actual trilogy. Um, if you read it, um, the first two books are um, the story of a guy who gets basically shipwrecked on an island and he goes travels around the world. Um, that gives you the storyline of how he applied the philosophy in a story as a character's story. Um, the third book, which is really hard to find in modern English or modern English translation, that is actually more straight philosophy where Defoe explains um, the actual philosophical context. So that would read more like uh, the meditations than the story. Um, but that's a wonderful book. Uh, if you want to get a modern, modern translation of that, um, Andy Weir, The Martian, is a um, reinterpretation of Daniel Defoe's neo-Stoic um, work. You know, uh, a lot of people know the 2015 uh, Matt Damon movie, um, but it removes a lot of the um, kind of Christian uh, theology overstep, but it has all the same virtues. Guy gets stuck on Mars, faced with a series of challenges, um, where Daniel Defoe would say, hey, you have to defend on reason to get out of your problems. Uh, basically, the Martian would say, hey, we have to, you know, depend on science, which is really the same, same construct. Um, the first few books of Harry Potter are, are very, very, very heavily um, focused on a modernized version of neo-Stoicism. Um, so if you look for the philosophy inside that story, you can find a lot of um, kind of stoic reactions or character interactions inside that book. And then finally, Tolkien, which was a a great World War I veteran in his own right. Um, inside the Lord of the Rings, he wrote um, or carried a lot of neo-historic ideas into uh, the Lord of the Rings and then his various archetypes of characters, um, like Aragorn being the reluctant king and uh, how people should act or Samwise, kind of the hero of the book, being kind of a, you know, a lowly farmer, but ends up being kind of this great character um, displays a lot of the stoic virtues of humility, service, love, compassion, um, et cetera. Um, if you're looking for kind of secondary sources that are really military related, um, James Stockdale, uh, Thoughts of a Philosophical pilot, Fighter Pilot or a Collection of His Speeches, uh, a guy that was shot down in Vietnam. Uh, really great stories about how he survived years and years of, of torture. And he helped himself and the people around him, the prisoners, come out of that experience with lower rates of PTSD than the average um, veteran. So it's quite remarkable what he was able to achieve in the most extreme environments. Uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Thirst for Meaning, um, he basically rediscovers kind of the stoic truths and what he called, um, oh no, I'm going to forget the theory they called it. Uh, but he was exposed to, yeah, there you go. Uh, he was exposed to, uh, the, the Holocaust, uh, the, the prison camps, and survived it. Um, great story about that and then surviving after the war. And then if you're a, a soldier, hey, go read Clausewitz and take the time to, to carefully review Clausewitz before you have to take him in a training course. Um, read all of Clausewitz, and you'll start seeing a lot more stoicism. And then 
for myself personally, I'm going to recommend the, you know, Ralph Waldo's Emerson's self-reliance. I think it's probably the quintessential American um, philosophy that he quotes Marcus Aurelius several times in it. Um, but he uses Roman name Antonius. So not a lot of people connect it, but um, a lot, a lot of great kind of American constructs of what an American philosophy would look like. And then finally, I would advise everyone to take a look at uh, on Google Books and then look up Captain Alden's Partridge Lecture on Education. And it's all of, I think, 13 pages long. But it really explains what an American education should be. And he's a great resource. If you look up his, uh, his original curriculum, you can take a look at what soldiers were trained in back in the 1820s. And it's really cool to take a look at how many of the kind of Greek and Stoic works are built into what should have been the American education. So I probably overloaded you with recommendations there, but. No, it's good. And, um, you know, there's a bunch of those I've read and a bunch of things I need to read. And there's, I actually, I read a, a modern book recently called First Principles about the founding of the country. And yes, I don't know if you've heard of it. I, I've seen that book. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I'd highly recommend it. And it, it's really interesting talking about the classical background and how, our founding fathers really saw themselves as setting up the, the second Roman Republic yes. and all the correlations back to philosophy and history there. Um, and this, this is a bit random, but one of the books that we had to read in terms of archetypal stories or that uh, my friend's platoon had to read their platoon start made everybody read starship troopers. Yes. And great libertarian dude, book. That, that book is great. I mean, in terms, but it's, it's not just libertarian. It is, there's a, a bunch about civic duty which is not necessarily. Well, so this is interesting because it kind of brings up the, some of the faults of modern stoicism is they overstress collectivism, but it's, it's liber Starship Troopers or Heinlein was libertarian in the sense it was all volunteer and you could walk away from your duty at any time. And obviously that did come at some consequence, but it was a way of finding, you know, who would you make guardians of society if you, if you can make like a perfect world and who would you, you know, judge the shape of the world. And then having this requirement of risking your life um, to be selected, to kind of have a voice of where society goes, seems like a, a fairly sound way of uh, protecting society is making sure so that people are. I, I agree with you totally. And I love the book and I recommend it to everybody. Um, and maybe I have an an immature understanding of libertarianism from just having people throw memes at me. But <laughs> I, I don't hear a big conversation in the libertarian community about civic duty. The conversation almost entirely revolves around individual freedoms. And, you know, I do think that, you know, you said that in the modern stoicism community, there's a lot of talk about collectivism and that's not what I'm trying to insinuate, but I do think that whenever you talk about, the nature of the American Republic and what it takes to survive. I do think that there's a, you have to talk about the balance of civic duty to individual freedom. And so, what I took away from, from Starship Troopers was, you know, the fact that you had to be a citizen, you had to volunteer and serve in the military. So it's interesting. So if you go back to the neo-Stoic virtues themselves, so it's a Stoic virtues and then they add faith, hope, and love. And you don't necessarily have to be a Christian to, to adapt those virtues. You know, faith is you have to believe that the world is rational. So if you make 
any type of action, there's cause and effect that's in play and that you can understand this cause and effect. So you can make rational choices and influence your, your environment. Hope is you have to have kind of this belief that you can face the reality, but you can hope to achieve whatever ends you're, you're trying to achieve. And Stockdale is a great one to talk about hope. But the final virtue is charity. And that's from the Greek um, agape word for love, which means like a non-self-serving love. And I think the argument there is if you're, if the government is forcing individuals or removing resources, transferring wealth and doing other things, you're removing a chance for an individual to exercise the virtue of helping his neighbor. So at least in Heinlein's construct, I think that if you shrink the government, it allows people to have the expectation to go out and do virtue and enjoy the benefits of having the ability to do virtue versus having less control over means and capability of doing so. So I agree with you there. It's just, again, to me, what's interesting is the conversation between the limited nature of government and the freedom that it gives to the individual to exercise virtue. And then also a conversation about civic virtue and doing your part. Because I think that if you're solely focused on your individual liberties and you're solely lacking in what it takes to have a functioning nation. And if you're solely interested in, you know, what the whole can do for the individual, then you're also going to be severely lacking. And to me, that book was one of the first books as a young man that really caused me to think a little more deeply about that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I would agree that our, especially our founding fathers designed a Republic that was built on top of a theology that supported more expectation of the citizen than we have now. because so I think we've removed that underlying shared construct of what it means to be a citizen that used to exist in our society. Yeah, sorry. And I know that social <laughs> trooper thing was like way off topic, but and I agree with your initial sentiment in terms of if somebody out there is interested in understanding stoicism more, uh, how to think like a Roman emperor is part self-help, part history, part philosophy, and I listened to the audiobook. It was one of the first books I listened to that really sucked me in. And then afterwards, it, me moving into reading the meditations and Seneca and Epictetus, it provided a groundwork where I understood a lot of the key ideas instead of having to try and parse it, parse through it myself and put these things together. Well, Franklin, it's been about an hour and a half. I appreciate you taking the time to come on here. This has been a good conversation. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to have me on. All right. If it, anyone wants to get a hold of you, uh, or, you know, learn about the projects that you're working on, some of the things that you're doing, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, so probably the easiest way to contact me is I'm on Twitter at Evolving More. Um, but people can find my, uh, my videos or my lectures on YouTube, uh, BitChute or Odyssey, um, under the, the channel name, name of Evolving Warfighter. And if you just type in my name into Google, you're going to hit a lot of my articles um, written in several military journals around the globe. So if you leave me a comment on uh, Twitter or on YouTube or any of the video sources, I can definitely get back to people. Okay. All right. Well, thanks again. Okay. Thank you.